Morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. And this is from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you, get, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Morning, church. Again, this morning we are continuing in our Renew series. If you happen to miss last week, uh, we're in a series that's taking a closer look at the vision and values of Christ Central Church. So if you're new, you came at the right time. I do want to mention as well, you're going to hear part of our vision and values today, but if you'd like to know more, immediately following service, we have starting points, so it's a time for you to meet the staff, hear more about the church. We'd love for you to stick around. Food is, lunch is provided, so we welcome you to do that as well. As I said last week, Daniel, the other pastor here, preached on our vision uh, that we exist for the glory of God and the good of Durham. And he also looked at how we seek to accomplish that vision through spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. If you weren't here last week, I highly recommend you take some time to visit our website and listen to that sermon. It really serves as the foundation for what we're going to talk about over the next five weeks. But starting this week, we're going to shift to look at our five core values here at Christ Central. These are the things that you should see, smell, taste, hear when you interact with our community here at Christ Central. If you were to cut Christ Central, we would bleed these five values. And the first one that we're gonna look at this morning is the value of grace-centered, being grace-centered. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna dive into our text this morning. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would speak mightily this morning. Uh, it is my deep desire that each of us would know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and our experience, what it means to be grace-centered, and that that would permeate this church, uh, that we would be a grace-centered community, and that we would experience that together, and that this community around us would see us as such. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, a broken man, this morning. Use me as your vessel to bring your truth to your people. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In November of 1517, it is rumored that Martin Luther King, and um, excuse me, <laughs> wow, I'm, on, I'm in two different wavelengths right now, Martin Luther, we'll, we'll, let's start over. In November of 1517, Martin Luther, in a most scandalous move, Dr. King probably would have done the same thing, nailed his 95 theses to the front door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, many of us are probably familiar with that story. However, I find that very few Christians actually know much of what the document said. Many of us have never read the 95 Theses. This morning, I want to highlight the very first of the 95 Theses, really the foundation of the whole document. It states, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I want to read that again. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, Luther's monster point here is that one of the most defining characteristics of a Christian is repentance. Not just a one time so that I can get in the club repentance, but an ongoing and unending repentance that is fueled by a keen awareness of our need for God's grace. However, brothers and sisters, so often what we see in our Western Christian context is that the defining characteristic of a Christian is the appearance of perfection. Amen? Have you seen that? Churches become places where we seek to display to one another as best we can that we've got it going on, that we don't have any needs, that we're doing just fine, and that our struggle with sin is a thing of the past. We live as those who have no need of repentance. Shortly after I started seminary, or some pejoratively call it cemetery, I began to experience something that I had never known before in my short spiritual journey. My passion for God and His glory began to fade. You see, I had this dramatic conversion experience in college, and for the first five years of walking with God and doing ministry, I was on fire. I was so fueled and impassioned with God and His glory and what He was doing in the lives of those around me and in my own life. And then I went to seminary, and at the same time I began to experience some trials in my personal life and in my family life, and all of a sudden, the gospel began to lose its sweetness. I wonder if some of you have experienced something like that in your own spiritual journey. The problem was not so much the experience, but more so how I handled it. You see, instead of crying out for help, instead of sharing honestly and openly with others, instead of dealing with the issue head on, I began to hide. You know why I began to hide? Because I was a professional Christian. I was in the middle of my graduate studies preparing for a lifetime of vocational service for this God that I didn't really like anymore. You can't share that with anyone, right? 
It's comparable to a musician beginning to hate music or a counselor beginning to hate people, a teacher beginning to hate children or a cook beginning to hate food. You share these things and now all of a sudden your job is in jeopardy, right? So in my fear of what people might think and might do, I went deeper and deeper into hiding because I was afraid if I was honest about what was going on, then I would be no longer fit to be a pastor. And probably deeper than that, I was afraid if I was honest about what was going on, then people would no longer like or respect me. That, that was what I so desperately wanted. I want you to sit in that thought for a minute before we go any further. What would happen if you shared those deep, dark things with the person sitting next to you right now? Those things that you have gotten so good at hiding. Would they think you're crazy or sick or dirty? Or would they continue to walk with you and do life with you? That's the million dollar question, right? If we're honest, will people stay? And the, the, the reason that question is so important is because if we don't confidently know the answer to that question, we will inevitably become a church full of people wearing masks. We will be pretending to be something that we're not, pretending that everything is fine, and dying on the inside. And I can guarantee you this, if that's who we are, we will fail miserably to glorify God and bless this city. So there's a lot at stake here, amen? So in order to fight against this tendency, I want to look at three things this morning as we begin to unpack what it means to be grace-centered. First, we're going to look very simply at what is grace-centeredness. What does it mean to be grace-centered? Secondly, we're going to look at the enemy of grace-centeredness. And then thirdly, and lastly, the fruit of grace-centeredness. So let's, let's dive in now. Before we unpack what it means to be grace-centered, we first have to define grace, right? What is grace? We're going to look at a couple of texts this morning, but I want to begin in Matthew 20, the text that was just read. Matthew 20 is a parable. A parable is a fictional story that is used to make a point. And what we see in the Scripture so often is that Jesus uses parables to communicate points that are really hard for us to swallow, things that he knows that we're going to struggle to grasp. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is trying to explain what grace is And yet Jesus is full aware that one of the most difficult concepts for humans to embrace is the concept of grace. And the reason is, is because it's so contrary to the way the world functions, to our perception of justice and right and wrong. It's contrary even to basic logic. It's profoundly unusual. And so Jesus knows this lesson's going to be difficult. So look with me again now at the parable. The text is in your bulletin. I'm going to summarize the story for us here. There's this man who owns a vineyard, and he needs some help caring for his vineyard. And so he goes out and hires some people to work for the fields, and he agrees to pay these people one denarius for a day's work. It's a pretty generous offer. But he does something weird, and three hours later, he finds some other people who are not working, have nothing to do, and so he hires them as well and brings them on to be a part of this project. And he continues to do this throughout the day. Every few hours, he adds a few more workers. And then, this is where it gets strange, at the end of the day, he calls 
all his workers together and begins to pay them. But he does something rather unusual, and he, he does it very purposefully. He wants everyone to see what he's doing. And he starts by paying the most recent hires first, the ones who've worked the least. And you see what's phenomenal here is that for some bizarre reason, he decides that all have earned the same amount. And so he pays the last one denarius, and then on down the line, he continues to pay everyone the same amount. But what happens? And we could see this coming. The workers who were hired first get angry, right? Listen to what they say in verse 12. These, these bums over here, they worked only one hour, and you have made them equal, that's the key word, to us who have been born, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And of course, in a business sense, we understand why they're angry. It makes perfect sense that someone who works 12 hours should make more money than someone who works one. But Jesus is not proposing a business plan. No, he's explaining the doctrine of grace. And he knows what he's explaining is going to be very hard because he is explaining it to a people who are entrenched in a performance-based worldview. This idea that you get what you pay for, you reap what you sow, you get out what you put in worldview. And yet the point that Jesus is making is that grace is fundamentally contrary to that way of thinking. Grace throws our performance-based MO down the drain. Listen to how A.W. Tozer defines grace. He says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. It's the opposite of you get what you pay for. It's God's unmerited favor. Or maybe even more profoundly stated by Jerry Bridges, grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. It's God moving in love towards those who deserve his wrath. That's grace. But how, how can this be? How can this grace even be possible? I want to read Words of Paul from Galatians 4, I think he gives light to that question. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But here's the key point, but God, as Justin said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as son. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, it's so important that we see this here. Grace is not cheap love. It's not God simply looking the other way at our sin. No, grace is made possible only because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. On the cross, Christ fully satisfied the requirement of the law and took care of our sin, our failure to perform, amen? And it's through that work that God is able to, he's empowered to bless us 
the profoundly undeserving. Listen again to verse 5. Listen to what kind of blessing God showers upon us to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, through the cross, God is empowered not just to pardon us, but he invites us into his family. Some of you may have met or at least be familiar with a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, She is a renowned author and teacher, and she actually lives here in Durham, is married to a pastor. Lord help her, I know that's not fun. But her story is fascinating. See, Rosaria years ago was an outspoken member of the LGBT community and a staunch opponent of all things Christian. And while on her mission to dismantle and debase Christianity, she came in contact with a pastor named Ken Smith. And Ken was instructed by one of his congregants, please don't ever tell me to do this, instructed by one of his congregants to go and silence Rosaria because she was bad for Christianity. Thankfully, Ken didn't do that. What Ken did was he invited her into his home and began to treat her like family. He welcomed her into his family. He didn't judge her. He didn't condemn her. He just spent time with her. He loved her. He accepted her. He welcomed her into his life. And through this grace-centered hospitality, Rosaria met Christ. And Christ began to do a work in Rosaria and showed her his goodness and his grace, and she was forever changed. Rosaria is now married to a pastor, as I said. She has four beautiful children, has written multiple books, and she travels around the country sharing her story. That's the power of grace. That's what grace is. Brothers and sisters, our God has moved forward towards us in love. He has adopted us, those who deserve the exact opposite. He's welcomed us into his family. In spite of the fact that we deserve the opposite, he receives us as sons and daughters. That's the truth that needs to anchor us as a church. Isn't that beautiful? So if that's grace, God's unmerited favor towards those who deserve his wrath, how do we go about being grace-centered? How do we be centered in that truth that we hold to? It's rather simple, actually. We have to admit defeat. We have to give up. We have to stop trying to earn our way into God's favor. We have to throw our performance-based living away and humbly receive the gift that we can never earn and that we do not deserve. Listen to Romans 4, how Paul says this. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a, not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Who gets blessed? It's not the hardest worker, not the most deserving. The one who gets blessed is the one who is humble enough to receive the blessing as a free gift. 
the pardon that comes in Christ. This is the upside down nature of the gospel. We win through losing. We live through dying to ourselves. Because that's just the strange way that our God works. That's who he is. He's about raising the dead, not rewarding the rewardable. And to be grace-centered is to recognize that we don't deserve it, but that it is ours in abundance. That needs to be true of us, Christ Central. So it seems rather simple, right? Amen, let's call it a day. We can head on out of here. Fortunately, there is a mighty enemy that stands in the way of our grace-centeredness, and that enemy is called legalism. Legalism is the disease that seeks to rob us of the riches of God's grace. It's when we fall back into our performance way of living. Look again at our text. Why were the workers so angry? What were they so mad about? They were paid the exact amount that they were promised. That seems fair to me, right? So what's the source of their complaints? Verse 12, they say, again, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us. You see it? They're keeping score. And in their minds, they have scored much higher than the other workers. And so they, they deserve to be compensated as such. They saw themselves as better, not equal to the other workers. And when the owner of the vineyard had the audacity to treat them as equal, they got angry. It no longer mattered what they had agreed to or what was fair. All that mattered was that they be recognized as better than all the rest. Brothers and sisters, that is the poison of legalism. It's the very thing that Jesus is trying to squash in Matthew 20. Think about the context here that Jesus is speaking into. Matthew 18, the disciples are fighting about who's the greatest. Who's going to get the greatest reward? Matthew 19, the disciples are mad because Jesus is welcoming children. They've they've decided that there's this hierarchy and they're at the top. And Jesus is saying, you have missed the point. In my economy, there is no hierarchy. Listen to how commentator Robert Capone summarizes Jesus' point. He says, bookkeeping is the only punishable offense in the kingdom of God. For in the happy state, in the kingdom of God, the books are ignored forever and there is only the book of life. And in that book, nothing stands against you. There are no debit entries that can keep you out of the clutches of the love that will not let you go. There is no minimum balance which the grace that finagles all accounts will cancel your credit. And there is, of course, no need for you to show large amounts of black ink because the only auditor before whom you must stand is the Lamb, and he has gone deaf, dumb, and blind on the cross. Legalism is when we bring our scorekeeping tendencies into our relationship with God. When we believe that God's favor is tied to our performance, that the more we obey, the more he will love us, and the less we obey, the less he loves us. Legalism is demanding that we be paid rather than receiving the free gift. And the question is not if we struggle with legalism, church, it's when, because we all struggle with this. We struggle with legalism every time we get angry when God doesn't give us what we think we've earned. We struggle when we judge the sins of others with a fine-tooth comb. We struggle when we despise when good things happen to bad people. Or when we wallow in shame 
and hide from God because we feel too dirty. Or when we are welled up with pride because we've been so righteous this week. Or when we're struggling with sin and we just feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame and we don't even want to wake up in the morning. Brothers and sisters, sisters, all of us are infected by this disease. So what do we do about it? How do we combat this thing that is robbing us of the grace-centeredness that we need? For so long, I thought the solution to legalism was to cultivate a right view of the law, of the commands of Scripture. So if I'm struggling with legalism, I just need to throw out the law. I just need to quit worrying about what God says in His Word, right? I just chunk it. Thankfully, it's been through the writings of Sinclair Ferguson that I've been able to see that that solution is in fact imperfect. That will never actually solve the problem because the root of the problem that is feeding my legalism is not a wrong view of God's law, but a wrong view of God. I'll say that again. The thing that produces legalism in us is not a wrong view of God's law, but a wrong view of God himself. In order to avoid legalism and return to being grace-centered, I need to be reminded of the God of grace. I need to know who he is. Because when I'm reminded of that, that God is a gift giver, that all he knows is how to be gracious and loving and merciful, then I can return to his law and see it as a precious gift. Not something to be held over me so that I can sh- to show me that I am the worst failure ever, but it's something that brings me to Christ and then points me to this life that is rich and full of blessing. I'm gonna give you an example. I was spending a day with the Lord not too long ago, and I was reminded that in a previous life, I used to drive the speed limit. I drove the speed limit because of Romans 13, that Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. So I drove the speed limit, living in Atlanta, Georgia. Think about that, 55 around the perimeter if you've ever been there. It's a scary thing to do. But I did it, and I hated it. It felt silly, it felt stupid, and I I felt like this God that was requiring this of me was the ultimate killjoy. But I walked in this obligation because the Bible said so. I was supposed to. And I was spending a day with the Lord a few weeks ago, and I was reading Ferguson's book, and I found myself riding home, and I was driving the speed limit. And I know this is trivial, but I, I want you to see what's going on here. I began to experience this inner peace. I began to realize, wow, I'm not worried about looking for a police officer. I'm not worried about getting anywhere in a hurry. And I was just at peace. And that peace actually drove me to worship because I was reminded, wait a minute, God, you do these things because you love me. You want me to experience your riches and your grace and I, and I sang God's praises all the way home, and it was a delightful experience of walking in his law. Because I was reminded that our God gives good gifts. That's all he knows how to do. He doesn't know how to steal my joy. I know that's a silly example, but I challenge you to allow that to sink in and apply that to your life. God wants to give you good gifts. That's who he is. 
Ferguson says, For unless we are persuaded that God has shown his grace in his law as well as in his Son, all we will hear and see at Sinai is thunder and lightning. It's where God gave us the law. We see it as punishment, something to be afraid of. But the cure for us, brothers and sisters, is to begin to understand and see the God of grace and be united to Christ in that. And no longer does God's law become doom and gloom, but it becomes riches beyond measure. That frees you from legalism and brings you back to being grace-centered. Lastly, church, I want to paint a picture of what the fruit of grace-centeredness is, what this will produce in us. And I believe there's no better place for us to turn than Luke 7. This is uh, Jesus talking. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I think that text speaks for itself. What, what is the fruit of grace-centeredness? It's a community that is created where only the messy are welcome. Listen to Capone again. He says, the last may be first and the first last, but that's only for the fun of making the point. Everybody is on the payout queue and everybody gets full pay. Nobody who is kicked out who, hasn't, who wasn't already in. The only bruised backsides belong to those who insist on butting themselves into outer darkness. Hell is reserved only for the idiots who insist on keeping non-existent records in their head. It's pretty strong language there. But his point is so dead on. Christ Central, to be grace-centered is be a community where there are no insiders and outsiders, where the self-righteous, those who think they've earned a special seat at the table, are humbled, and the least of these are given the best seat in the house. 
It creates a community where black lives matter, brown lives matter, felony lives matter, poor lives matter, sex offender lives matter, new Christian, old Christian lives matter, highly educated, uneducated lives matter. It creates a community where we can be honest about who we really are. I don't know where you've been or what you've done, but I don't care. You're welcome here. There's nothing that you could share with me that would cause you to be not welcome in this place. At our core, the question we're asking all of us is, do you like me? We want to know that answer more than anything in the world. But the problem is we've all been convinced that if we're honest, if we really tell you the truth, the answer is going to be no. If we share those ugly things underneath the hood, that you're going to go away. So we hide. We project someone who, we not, who is not true of who we are. And we hope that you'll like that person that we're projecting that you won't go away. But if we become a church, church, if we become a church that is grace-centered, we will find the freedom to share who we really are and we'll have the confidence that in our honesty, you will stay. You won't run away. I shared with you about the spiritual valley that I was in a few years ago. You want to know how I got out of that valley? You don't? I thought JR would at least want to know. Thank you. Well, I'm going to share it with you. One of the main catalysts for me coming out of that valley was the way that Daniel, the other pastor here, loved me and pursued me in the valley. Uh, Daniel and I went to Nashville to do, get some consulting, and it turned into a counseling session. Our first meeting, the counselor looked at me, and he said, you are dead. You look like a ghost, because I was so hiding there's no emotion or life in me. And then the counselor invited Daniel to speak into what it's been like to be with me for the past year. And in that moment, Daniel, with tears in his eyes, shared with me the loneliness that he had felt with me, and he pleaded with me to come back. He didn't demand that I act a certain way or be a certain way, that I perform or be some stud Christian. He just asked that I be present and honest. See, Daniel chose to pursue me and forgive me and extend grace to me that I hadn't earned, that I didn't deserve. He just chose to do it because he loves me. And it was that movement towards me that gave me the courage to come out of hiding. Brothers and sisters, I hope and pray that we can be a church that is grace-centered, that will invite one another to come out of hiding. And I hope that as the community sees us, they will see this honesty, this vulnerability, and it will be contagious. And there will be rosarias and others who come in and experience unconditional love here. Because church, that's who we are. In Christ, we are free to be honest and to love radically because we are secure in his love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that each of us would experience the riches, the fruit of being a part of a grace-centered community, that we would feel the safety and security. And for those of us who are hiding, I pray that people like Daniel would pursue them and call them out of hiding and into honesty and vulnerability, knowing that 
They are secure as sons and daughters of the King. And nothing will change that. God, I pray for freedom in this community and that we would cling to this value of being grace-centered, knowing that if we lose it, we lose everything. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.